Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and here we go with another studcast with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So, let's step back into the ring, back into time. We get wall to wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller hanging out in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Ron, you're looking forward to July 4th. I think we're less than a week away. Yeah, man. We're getting real close to it. Actually, we're going to be talking about that today. You know, we're going to be uh, in that time frame, except we're 44 years later. (laughs) I guess that that makes a little bit of difference. uh, Just a little. It's kind of crazy that we're just about uh, riding up. Almost exactly 44 years later, after all these studcasts, um, we we're but yep, Fourth uh, of July, man. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's one of the great holidays. It's a, it's a super American holiday. That's for darn sure. Indeed, and the heat is going to be on for the Fourth of July. I know it's going to warm up for you guys. It's going to do the same for you, uh, here. All right, but we are now halfway through 2023. And here's the thing, our deep dive into 1979, and already your audience has exploded in numbers. You and your two territories have experienced more success, problems, and adversity than maybe any promoter and owner of a wrestling territory maybe ever. Early in 1979, you dismantled your Gulf Coast territory to provide wrestlers to your father's faltering territory, then replace those wrestlers with new stars to make it more profitable than ever. Now, what happened What happened north of there was just the opposite in Knoxville. Starting the year with huge success and now finding yourself in a very rare and devastating wrestling war with business dropping. How does that set with the Tennessee stud? Oh, jeez, man. You know, I've always said 1979 is the most difficult year as a promoter and owner and a wrestler for me. And I was experiencing, yeah, at this point, I was experiencing more ups and downs than a great wrestling match, man. I was personally wrestling uh, with the worst of times and the best of times. You know, I would have never said this years ago, but looking back, Dave, this tremendous growth in the Studcast fans during this last six months or so uh, is maybe the best thing yet to come out of any of that 1979. Wow. So I got to admit, though, your title for this one, I think, is maybe the best yet to describe what was happening in your life. Studcast number 305. That's this one. Number 305. This show is called July 4th, 1979, Bear, Fireworks, and War. <laughs> <laughs> well, that kind of says it all, man, you know, about what was happening. Especially that week in 1979, Gulf Coast was running on Wednesday night, uh, July 4th, 1979, in the big building in Mobile, where we were going to be having indoor fireworks, along with a night of wrestling to celebrate that. Uh, And then uh, 500 miles north of Knoxville, we were wrestling in Chihuahua Park two days after that Mobile event. And, uh, you know, uh, on that card... Uh, we have a bear, you know, so uh, that's where I get my bear from. And then the night before, another wrestling company followed us with their own card, 
Uh, We were literally in a war, man, for our survival. So so there's your three parts, man, uh, for for this title, and uh, and they kind of fit with what's going on, man. All right, so it sounds like the stage is definitely set for this one, Stud. So where do we ride this week? How do you get started? Well, we're going to start this studcast in the southeastern Knoxville Territory. Uh, we'll be talking about that 4th of July week of 1979. Uh, they have a card up there in Knoxville that was loaded with three title matches, a bear match, and a couple of uh, real bear stories. I'm going to throw in a couple of stories today about bears. And uh, that last night, uh, you know, we were going to leave the fans in shock. You know, that the this card that we're going to be dealing with up there in Knoxville, fans are going to be truly shocked by this one. We'll also be taking a look at the TV show, the results of those matches, and the Knoxville attendance. Then we'll return to some more crucial information about the Knoxville War. As the Knoxville Five at this point were expanding their business relationship. We're going to get into that today, too, for fans, uh, because the interest is really great for people uh, out there that's been listening to this. Then Southeastern Gulf Coast had only the, the major, had the only major 4th of July match of the two territories. And that was going to be in Mobile, Alabama. It's going to be in that 12,000-seat municipal auditorium. Uh, we were going to have the indoor fireworks and, uh, and another loaded card. With uh, three additional stars on that one, added to the normal crew, four title matches. So we'll cover their most, uh, you know, unusual TV show, a separate show from that one. That we're going to be doing two shows, uh, two TV shows in this week because Mobile has a totally different card than Montgomery and Dothan. And uh, so we'll have the results. We'll give the results of that Mobile card and the attendances and all the all three of the major markets. And then given enough time, man, if we have enough, we're going to have ourselves a learning tree question to end all this. Oh, that'd be cool. Hope we can do that. You mentioned, you just said indoor fireworks. Had anybody in wrestling done, had indoor fireworks been done anywhere? I don't think anybody in wrestling had done them. I don't know if anybody in wrestling ever did it other than me. But I had the idea and I found a company that could do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, and Mobile's building was perfect for it because it had a dome on the top of it, the municipal auditorium there. Yeah. So, so the ceiling was about 200 feet high. Wow. Yeah. So it, it enabled you to do th- things like that. So, no, I don't think uh, I don't think anybody else was doing it. It was kind of like a lot of other things we were doing. <laughs> Nobody else was doing it. Nowadays, even <laughs> wrestling you see on TV, when the referee comes out, there's fireworks. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. So anyway, it's another, you can tell it's another big stud cast. No doubt, Ron, let's begin this ride in Knoxville's chill. Howie park amphitheater Friday night, July 6th, 1979. Set that card up for us. Well, it was loaded, man, uh, because we traditionally did big business during this week of the year. It was the first week in July was always big. Uh, summers were good the first week in uh, July. July, August were strong months. Uh, this one opened up with the former Southeastern champion, Alexis Smirnoff, taking on Wildfire Tommy Rich in the opening match. Smirnoff and Tommy Rich. So you got a, it, it means that you got a pretty darn good card that's going to be coming. Uh, then there was a tag match, David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield against Dean Ho and Ted Allen. Then there was the United States Junior Heavyweight uh, title uh, controversy was continuing there. Uh, it was another one of those fantastic series of championship matches between Tony Charles and Kevin Sullivan. Wow, tremendous matches these two guys had. And the belt had been swapped back and forth at this point already, and this was the fourth match between the two of them since Sullivan had taken the belt from Mike Graham basically about a month earlier. So the next match was a special event with Jimmy Golden going against the challenge made by Gorgeous George Jr. on TV. Then the fourth match was uh, also something very special. It was in the it was the first in a series of matches with the Bear in southeastern Knoxville's five-year history. It was the first time that we had had a Bear. And the Bear was going to have a rough week 
I guess that's a good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. The five of his six matches were going to be against Crusher Blackwell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a human that weighed almost as much as the bear. That bear was like, oh, no, are you kidding? <laughs> so there were there were two more championship matches to finish out this holiday week. And uh, for the Southeastern belt, Dick Slater was going to be defending again against the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous Georgie Jr., but this time, the belt was again at stake, but there was going to be, each one of them were going to have their fist taped. Um, so the last match on this card would be my father and I, managed by my cousin, Jimmy Golden, getting a return match for the Southeastern Tag Belts against the new champions. We had lost the belt the week before with Jimmy in our corner. He's back again in our corner. This time, uh, we're the Tanaka and Fuji are defending the belts against us. Gorgeous George Jr. is in their corner. All right. That's a, I mean, it really sounds like a great card, Ron. Seven matches. I would love to have seen the bear match with 450-pound Crusher Blackwell plus those three title matches, Charles versus Sullivan, you and your father trying to get the belts back. And I can't even imagine being in the ring with Dick Slater and he's got his fist taped up. <laughs> Yeah. that'd be a nightmare. <laughs> Just about anybody, man. Especially if you knew anything about Slater, for, yeah, that's for sure. So, I, you know, I got to say, I've seen him a few times put guys' <laughs> lights out, and he didn't have his fist tape when he did it. <laughs> he, right. he had a pretty big right hand. Mm. All right, so tell us about the TV show and how you got it all set up to promote this card. Well, New Southeastern champions, Tor Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, uh, with their belts, and Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, started out with Les at the set, and they watched the video of our loss the night before. Uh, on Friday night, and we did the TV the next day. We, we taped the match, and uh, they showed it back. It had a wild finish on the match. Uh, Jimmy uh, was involved in it. So was a Gorgeous George Jr., all of us in one corner, basically, and everybody – moving down the ropes, and Jimmy reached in and snatched the leg, but it was the wrong leg, and he took my dad down instead of Tanaka. Tanaka got the pin. That's how they got the championship. So Gorgeous George uh, made a strange challenge after the video. He said he wanted Jimmy Golden in a special match by himself before the tag match. And, uh, and then he said, whole point here is, Les, I'm going to make sure Jimmy Golden don't make it to the tag match. I'm going to personally hurt Jimmy Golden bad. And uh, and he says he's not going to be in the Fuller's Corner for the tag match. So Dad and I were in the first match on this TV show. And uh, Jimmy escorted us to the ring. He's going to be in our corner again. And uh, then uh, went straight to the set with Les to accept the challenge that Gorgeous George Jr. had just made a few minutes earlier. And uh, we were taking care of we were taking care of business in the ring, and Jimmy was eager to have a chance to do what Gigi had wanted. You know, and Jimmy, you can imagine Jimmy's being challenged by Gorgeous George Jr. So, uh, you know, he, he couldn't wait. <laughs> he told Les, "I can't wait to get in the ring with him." Because <laughs> you know, he's going to be the guy that ain't going to make it to the to the championship match, not me. So then the United States Junior Heavyweight Champion, Tony Charles, was in the next TV match. Kevin joined, set, joined Les at the set uh, to make some comments about the second chance in two weeks to regain his belt back, uh, the one he had won from Mike Graham four weeks earlier. So Charles exploded the studio crowd, man. He did another <laughs> one of those English throws, man. That Wow. I don't know how many of them he had. But uh, it seemed like he never ran out of something different. When he got ready to finish a match, he just did these awesome tosses that just left guys laying. Wow. All right, that sounds cool. But listen, I can't wait to find out how Crusher Blackwell felt about his upcoming matches, plural, with Ginger the Wrestling Bear. <laughs> well, you, you're not going to have to wait long, Dave. Uh, you know, Crusher was next, on, and he was on the personality profile. And he and Les watched this same montage of the Bears' recent matches uh, that we showed down in the Southern Territory with Billy Spears and Eddie Graham, where, I mean, Eddie Sullivan. And uh, Eddie Sullivan and Spears had wrestled the Bear down there every night for a week, and wow, the montages were great. 
And uh, so this same uh, video we brought up up north, and uh, we used it up there, and it showed, uh, well, you know, uh, <laughs> that was the one where Spears and Sullivan walked away when Charlie Platt wanted to show the video to them, you know, <laughs> because they looked so bad in it. So Blackwell had never seen a bear wrestle, and he was totally captivated by the video. <laughs> when he watched it, you could tell he was like, "Wow, <laughs> this is a, a this is what a bear wrestles like," you know. And so the so the TV crew, you know, they got a fantastic split screen shot. That one of those things that we were doing in Knoxville, one of the few TVs were doing it back in those days, where. You had the bear on one side. It showed the action with the bear on one side, and it showed Blackwell's face on the other. Like you could see what's what's going on in his mind. And uh, the bear, you know, the, so then the bear trainer, uh, he brought his bear into the studio live right there, uh, you know, uh, and he took him into the ring. Hmm. And the studio audience, you know, they got uh, very nervous, basically, you know, and, and been excited at the same time, though. So he did the ending of what he did on all these bear matches. It was a traditional ending that my grandfather had started way back in the 30s and 40s with his bear. This bear's name was Ginger, same as my grandfather's bear's name. Hmm. And so he had his bear sit up on her hind legs. He gave her a, a bottle of Coca-Cola, which she gladly drank. Uh -huh. and, and it was exactly the same thing my grandfather uh, did after every one of Ginger's matches uh, about 40 years prior to that. Uh, listen, I, that's amazing. I mean, even the bear's name is the same. Is is this person Ken? Did he know your grandfather? I mean, how are the, these coincidences, uh, the Coca-Cola deal, how does that work? That's amazing. Well, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was a great ending that Roy had figured out years ago for his matches with his bear and uh, – mm -hmm. He ended every one of them that way, and she knew it. She was she was really uh, looking forward to having that Coke. That was her prize at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So this guy had seen these tapes, I'm sure, of, uh, of the original bear. And, uh, you know, he, he said, wow, how do you beat that for an ending, you know? So, yeah. so he kind of copied it, even copied her name. Wow. Which, you know, uh, you know I, I didn't have a problem with it. In a way, it was kind of flattering. I'm sure Roy... Yeah. And old Ginger herself would have been flattered by that. That's wow. That's really cool that that he patterned what he knew about a wrestling bear uh, with what your grandfather started. So that, I mean, that's really cool. And what an incredible personality profile. So your grandfather Roy, in the late '30s, as you were saying, trained one of the very first bears to re to to wrestle ever that we're aware of. You said you would have a couple of wrestling bear stories for us on the show today. Is that going to be coming now or is that coming later? I think I'm going to save it, man, until I give the results of the upcoming bear match between Blackwell and the, and the new Ginger. Cool. Okay. So let's continue with the third match, the third TV match. So it was time for fans to get a look at the new Southeastern Tag Champions, Dora Tanaka and Mr. Fuji. They paraded into the studio behind their strutting manager, gorgeous George Jr. And uh, basically, wow, that Tanaka and Fuji, what a team they were. They just destroyed a couple of young guys, man. Then uh, the guys, I'm sure, weren't happy to see them get in the ring. <laughs> Most of those young guys didn't know who they were going to be wrestling. And, uh, so it was probably a real shock. And then uh, Jimmy, my dad, and I, we went to the set with Les. And uh, Jimmy guaranteed the fans and me that my father – was wasn't going to get hurt that's what he emphasized last week i don't want you getting hurt again he says you're not going to get hurt and that the fans were going to jimmy said the fans were going to get something special the next friday night and he was going to send gg back to the dressing room on a stretcher because gg had asked for that special match and uh then he's going to come back and make history in our match he said against the two wrestlers that were in the in the ring at that point when he was talking and, uh, and he had, he, he never seemed to be so confident. I'd never seen Jimmy so confident about how he's going to handle business. So then the TV show closed, uh, built around the upcoming Southeastern championship match. The one with the tape fist, the Mongolian stomper managed by Gigi. He made his way to the ring. He was wrestling, uh, Dick Slater with his belt and went to the set with Les for some comments. 
and uh, Dick was at the, you know, at the set. Uh, uh, he was he, with Stomper watching him from the ring. It made the Stomper, I think, even more brutal than he usually was. Man, he wanted to make a point, I guess, to Slater about how, how hard this match was going to be. And uh, so Slater said uh, he made he made a point of telling Les. He said, uh, "I got to tell you, Les." I've never lost a tape fist match. <laughs> oh, okay. He <laughs> seemed pretty confident. All right, but that's Dick Slater. All right, so I really don't doubt that at all, Stud, that he'd never lost a tape fist match. That was a well-designed TV show. It covered all four of the major upcoming matches and had a bear live on TV. So what happened the following Friday night? Well, Alexis Smirnoff won the opening match, his opening match against Tommy Rich. Uh, David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield beat Ted Allen and Dean Ho. They actually beat Ted Allen, but uh, Dean Ho was his partner. Tony Charles won again against Kevin Sullivan. Uh, Jimmy Golden went to the ring for his match, for his special challenge match with Gorgeous George Jr., and uh, they rang the bell, they rang the bell, they rang the bell, and George, gorgeous George never came out of the dressing room. So the referee finally uh, had him ring the bell, then he counted to 10, and, uh, and then he had, to ring, had him ring the bell again, and he went over and raised Jimmy's hand in victory. It was a forfeit. Jimmy never even had to wrestle Gigi. Gigi didn't come out. So then it was time for the 450-pound Crusher Blackwell to see what he could do with a 650-pound bear, it's in a, it was one of the best bear matches I had ever seen. I mean, wow, every night that Blackwell wrestled with this bear, the matches got better. And uh, so, but far more importantly, in my opinion, uh, in my, uh, my father, who along with his uncle Lester, had trained a bear. And, uh, and they said, uh, you know, Dad watched the match with me. And he said, that's one of the best matches I've ever seen with a bear. So uh, Blackwell was just as ferocious as the bear. In fact, it was uh, this match was the fourth match of that week against the bear. And, uh, and the bear was becoming afraid of Blackwell. <laughs> and after about 15 minutes, the bear started going to the ropes to get, to get away from Blackwell. <laughs> And uh, then finally, at the end of this match, the bear just left the ring. He dragged, he drug the handler out of the ring, and uh, he went to the dressing room. I've had enough. Oh yeah, God. yeah. And the bear, then they counted the bear out, rang the bell, rang Blackwell's uh, hand. He had literally beat the bear. Uh, <laughs> I've never yeah, seen that before. <laughs> but he actually got a win over the bear. Wow. I wonder if that had ever happened before. That's incredible. You said you had a couple of bear stories for us. So is now a good time? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I got two, two bear stories and, uh, you know, so my dad and, uh, and his uncle, uh, my grandfather's youngest brother, who was about 20 years younger than Roy named Lester. They trained a bear, their own bear. This was after Roy's bear, Ginger, had uh, gotten old, and uh, so they trained a bear, and, and they we they lived in Dyersburg, Tennessee. It was the town that I was born in, and my brother was born in. Uh, it was the wrestling capital of the South. There was so many wrestlers there that lived in Dyersburg, Tennessee, for some reason. And uh, so they they had their bear. They were training, and they would take their bear down to the little uh, arena that was there. There was an arena that the ring was up all the time. So they take their bear down there. So they were, they didn't drink in my, they, you know, Lester and dad never drank. So they were up real early on a Sunday morning. And uh, dad tells this story, boy, it was a great one. And he said that they, they, they said they, the bear, their bear had no, had her canine teeth, was all pulled. So she didn't have to have a mask on. And they said they just stuck her in the back seat of the car. And this was back in the 50s, right, when there was no air conditioning. So they rolled all the windows down on the car. And it mm -hmm. was early Sunday morning. And they said they pulled up on a corner, light turned red at a corner, right, to downtown Dyersburg. He said there was nobody on the street but an old drunk. And he said the guy was standing there. He said, uh, 
who had a, a bottle of whiskey in his hand still. And uh, he <laughs> said he was weaving around. And he said when they pulled up there, the bear had her head sticking out the window. He said the bear's head was only about three feet away from the drums. <laughs> so Dad said the drunk was weaving all around there, and he, Dad, Dad looked at him and he says, "What do you think of my dog?" <laughs> and the drunk went, "I thought that was a bar." <laughs> So I bet the drunk had a story to tell. <laughs> oh Lord! Oh, I got one more, man. Uh, this and this has to do with uh, this week that we're talking about here. These matches that that uh, Blackwell had been having against the Bear, and so on Saturday night, the last night that he was going to be wrestling the Bear, and uh, he had done it the night before. The Bear had run from him, basically. I told him, I got to sit down with him in the dressing room, and I said, you know, I said, Crusher, do you think that you could actually throw that bear over the top rope and out of the ring? And, wow. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, all for it. He goes, are you serious, Ron? You want me to do that? <laughs> I go, well, I want to see if you could. <laughs> you know? Wow. And uh, thank goodness the bear manager wasn't around to hear that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it was Harlan, Kentucky. And you can imagine Harlan, Kentucky, uh, it always sold out. But you had a bear and Crusher Blackwell, and people never saw that. We never brought bear in, but we, you know, very rarely. So uh, that place was just crammed, man. It was to the walls. And uh, so he went out there with the bear. And he started right away trying to get him over the top rope. One time he had his two front legs over the top rope and the bear guy was screaming so loud you could hear him. I could hear him back there. Get off my bear. What are you doing? This ain't the deal, man. You're not supposed to be doing this. And uh, just the same finish it was the night before in Knoxville. The bear finally, here he went. He's like, I've had enough. Wow. I'm gone. And he just drugged the the trainer, just kind of almost fell down and drug him out of the building, man, out to outdoors. Bear just went out the back door. Wow. Uh, so, how, how much did you say the bear weighed? About 650 pounds. Wow. Wow. All right. And you, you thought, and Crusher thought he could pick the bear up? Yeah, question was, hey, he did just about pick the bear up. I God. mean, he got his he got his upper body over the top rope. You know, I was like, wow, I think he's going to get this done. But uh, oh boy, but you know, there's only two hundred pounds difference between Crusher and the bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was a pretty big boy. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that couldn't be said often about Crusher Blackwell. All right, listen, no wonder you came from one of the craziest families in wrestling history all right so what happened the rest of that july 6th 1979 night so dick slater in his in his tape fist match where he's defending the southeastern belt he uh, he won it uh, he won the match and it was boy it was a bloody one i mean uh, you know uh, slater got busted and obviously so did stomper uh but uh, slater got the win on that and then the last match was going to be one of the biggest shocks, man, in Southeastern wrestling history. Uh, Jimmy went to the ring with me and my father, and uh, Gorgeous George uh, he showed up. Now, he didn't show up for the one-on-one uh, -on -one with Jimmy, but he showed up with Tanaka and Fuji for the championship. And the fans roared with booze, man, as soon as Gigi came out of the dressing room. He'd already refused to wrestle Jimmy, and now he's he showed up uh, when he – when they didn't want him to be there. So on the end of the match, all four of us, man, were in the ring, and uh, Jimmy kind of started in the ring, and the referee went to get him. And, you know, and when he did, that gave Gigi a chance to get him come into the ring himself, and uh, he did. And he had something on his hand, and Tanaka put a full Nelson on me, and Gigi tried to hit me, and I ducked, and he hit Tanaka with it. And I grabbed Gigi and I threw him over the top rope out onto the concrete. We were outside in the amphitheater. And uh, my father uh, covered Tanaka. And the referee uh, over there with Jimmy, he saw what happened and he dropped down to count Tanaka out. Uh, 
uh, Jimmy at this point was inside the ring, and uh, and he made his move, man. He ran across the ring, and he stomped the ref in the back of the head, uh, and uh, and he nailed uh, Dad. You know, uh, I was over there uh, taking care of Fuji at the point at that point, and uh, then uh, Jimmy kicked me uh, in the back of the head. He got me from behind, and he threw me over the top rope. Gigi was still outside the ring on the concrete. The uh, referee and I were both down. My dad was still on top of Tanaka, and uh, Jimmy stomped him in the back of the head, and then he picked him up and slammed him. At this point, the crowd had gone totally silent. I mean, they, 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 this Golden was just, what he was doing was just, it had everybody like, what in the heck is Jimmy doing? And uh, then he, then it, he, he did the last thing they expected, man. They were still quiet, and then once he he uh, he started up on the top rope, and uh, my dad was laying there. Fuji picked Dad up by the legs, and uh, Tanaka reached underneath his arms, and uh, and they held him about three feet off the mat. And Jimmy jumped as high as he could, man. He came sm- smashing down on Dad's midsection. And it drove my father's body into the mat, man, harder than I'd ever seen. I'd never, I'd never seen any that happen to a wrestler. They were holding him up, and Jimmy drove him into the mat. Wow. Uh, and the, gosh, I thought it might have killed him, broke his back. Wow. The uh, crowd exploded, man. I mean, they had uh, they'd figured out now, you know, wow, we're going to stop this. And the Suddenly, they started coming from everywhere in the amphitheater, man. I mean, they came, they surrounded the ring. Uh, Golden and Gigi, Tanaka and Fuji, they were trapped in the ring. They couldn't get out, man. Uh, the crowd was throwing chairs. The policemen gathered at one side of the ring, closest to the heels dressing room. And the four of them uh, finally got up, got to the f- concrete out onto the floor. And uh, the fight, they started fighting their way toward the dressing room. And the Heels and the heels, the policemen, the crowd was throwing punches, metal chairs, uh, all kinds of stuff was flying, and it was a bona fide big time riot. Uh, fans were throwing punches, uh, but, but it was uh, it was also the police. It was one of the worst riots I'd ever seen. Wow, it was just crazy. That it, does. It sounds absolutely crazy. All that after Jimmy Golden saying for two weeks, he didn't want your father to get hurt. So did anybody get hurt? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there was people laying everywhere, man. Uh, you know, my and but my father got the worst of it, obviously. You know, uh, and the, the terrible part about it is Jimmy for two weeks. You, like you say, he's been saying, you know, that I don't want your dad to get hurt. And my gosh, he's the he's the guy, the culprit that makes it happen. So, you know, uh, so it was an awful bump that he took. Uh, so, you know, at the end of this, uh, he went to the hospital. But, uh, you know, luckily no fans that I saw went to the hospital, you know. Uh, but there were people that weren't that weren't standing uh, when it was all over. And lots of fans stayed inside and even outside the amphitheater until the, the ambulance came. And they loaded my dad into the ambulance. And finally, after the ambulance left, uh, People started to leave, but wow, it was a it was a nasty night uh, and a shock to fans. Yeah, what a, what a night! How about the attendance? How did you guys do? Well, luckily, it was a beautiful night with no rain because that outside was always a chancy place. But it it didn't make a difference. It didn't make a difference yet at this point. We were just under three thousand again. But uh, what had happened on this night was so different, man. Uh, I had a feeling that this was going to make a big difference. The war, and until the, something could be done to stop it, was always going to keep Southeastern from getting back to the size of crowds that we had before the war. I knew that. We all expected it at this point. We'd seen about three weeks, four weeks of it now, and we knew that it was going to be very difficult from this point on. And... Uh, and it was just what was happened in most wrestling wars. It's exactly what uh, wars were all about. Uh, everybody failed, basically. All right. So what happened for the All-Star card and the crowd the night after your matches? Well, you know, as I said before, I don't have many of their their cards. You know, uh, after they started uh, 
I guess I really didn't want to know who was even on their cards, and I didn't keep stuff like that. Uh, I kept my own stuff, but I didn't keep their stuff. And I didn't uh, know much about their attendance figures. I know nothing about the card that was on that night uh, following us, except for the crowd estimate. And I had this fan that had been, you know, that I trusted. Uh, they had a little knowledge of uh, judging the crowd. And he would tell me uh, when I saw him uh, following week, you know, uh, what he thought it was. And I, you know, and I, so I was told uh, by him that uh, this was maybe the smallest crowd yet, possibly for them. And it was mm. probably easy. he anticipated or he estimated it being less than 700. Wow. You said earlier that you would give us more information about the Knoxville Five's business relationship with the Poffo family in nearby Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah, I think fans are going to find this interesting. Uh, so we started into the and did this the last studcast basically uh, i think i explained about the Poffo family uh angelo Poffo, and he had two sons uh, one named lanny and one named randy uh, obviously randy was randy savage later on going to be the macho man and uh, angelo had been in the wrestling business for a while and uh, now uh, he kind of settled down into the northern part of uh, the tennessee territory uh, up into Kentucky, basically, and uh, he wasn't interested in wrestling for the promoters who already were there and running matches, like my grandfather, who'd been in that part of the country for 50 years, uh, nor uh, Nick Goulas, uh, other, other uh, uh, Jerry Jarrett. So Papa wanted to run the same city as he did, even though he didn't, he hadn't paid a dime for anybody, you know, to anybody for the right to do so. He didn't own anything, and, uh, you know, he just running in somebody else's territory. And as, as I said, I paid $150,000 to John Kazana for what his and him and his brother had been running for 50 years, that Knoxville area. So it was basically normal in professional wrestling ownership that you buy an area from somebody recognized as an owner rather than just start your own wrestling company in their backyard. I mean, uh, it'd been crazy if I'd have gone into Knoxville in 1974 and uh, just started running matches and <laughs> had my own crew. Mm-hmm. I would have never considered doing that. But uh, Poffo oh. didn't run his business. Poffo obviously didn't agree with that. And obviously, neither did his new associates, the Knoxville Five. So until the war started, I'd never heard of Poffo, <laughs> the family mm-hmm. name before. Because they had never come far enough south to reach my territory, uh, and I'm sure, and I'm sure that was, you know, if they'd have been able to get on a TV station in Knoxville, they would have been running wrestling in my backyard instead of, uh, you know, running against the uh, Nashville Mid American, uh, Roy Welch and Nick Gouda's territory, or the Jerry Jarrett and uh, my dad's Memphis territory. It was a natural fit for the Knoxville Five men to get involved with the Poffos. In the beginning of their relationship, they did their own thing. And as it became uh, more difficult to draw fans, a stronger relationship developed between them. And uh, finally, sometime in the late summer of 1979, three of the Knoxville Five, Bob Root, Ronnie Garvin, and Bob Orton, partnered up with Angelo Mm. and his boys. Mm. And... uh, you know, but at that point, by the time we get to the end of the, the, the summer of 1979, Larry Simon, the great Malenko, has disappeared from the Knoxville Five. Wow. Ron Wright had basically disappeared from uh, working with him. So, uh, wow. you know, well, everything had changed dramatically. You know, I like exactly what you said. You didn't have time to deal with what those guys were doing. You were focusing on building and actually rebuilding something they had torn down, your territory, your company. So that's why I love this war information. I I like it, and I think the fans do too. We're kind of running out of time, so we got to move on as we did last week. I know we're going to be back with more of this next Studcast, but we got to get to the Gulf Coast and Mobile, Alabama, and it's huge, I mean big, July 4th card with indoor Fireworks. 
That's coming up when we come back as this Studcast continues. Hey, Studcast fans, Ron's novel Brutus has become one of the hottest books in the world. It's being compared to the classic thriller Jaws. You can get it on the website, tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. His living in the Great Smoky Mountains and it being the most popular national park in America makes Brutus even more popular this time of year. He has just received a new shipment of books. You can get yours personally autographed by the stud himself for only $29.99, and that includes free shipping, or $19.99 for the book only. Own a piece of history today. TNstud.com. Click on Stud Store. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back. We're now back home in Sweet Home, Alabama, Mobile to be exact, on a very special Wednesday night. July 4th, 1979, in its beautiful 200-foot-high domed municipal auditorium with 12,000 seats. It's a fact, at this point in 1979, Mobile was one of the best small cities in the world for wrestling. So, this was a monster card. Who was on this card? Well, man, this one was loaded for sure, man. It opened with the world-famous Inferno against a newcomer, Larry Edders. Uh, the second match was Herb Calvert that had been there, man, for about six months now. It was really over uh, against Bill Bill Mills. Uh, then there was a tag match, Ron Slinker and Roy Lee Welch uh, taking on the Gladiator and Eddie Sullivan, managed by Billy Spears. Then the first of four championship matches on this card. The Gulf Coast uh, is going to be welcoming back the United States junior heavyweight champion, Tony Charles. Uh, who was defending his belt against one of the most popular wrestlers in the South, Mr. Wrestling Number 2. Oh, what a match that was, Matt. <laughs> you can imagine uh, Charles and Wrestling 2. The Continental Wrestling Association champion, uh, Thunderbolt Patterson, was back again, and he was defending his belt against uh, the big old red-hot Hulk, man. Hulk was really over at this point. Uh, for the Southeastern Tag Championship, the team that had won the belts two weeks earlier in Mobile, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, were at this time defending for the first time against the team they won the belts from, the Samoans, managed by Billy Spears. The seventh match was for the Southeastern Championship. The champion, Austin Idol, was defending against an NFL Hall of Famer, man, one of the most popular wrestlers in history, six feet, nine inches, and 300 pounds, the big cat himself, Ernie Ladd. Wow. All right. A tremendous card, no doubt. Four big name, new stars, four title matches, and indoor fireworks to celebrate the 4th of July. I noticed in the early part of this studcast, you said something about having to produce a second TV show just for the Mobile market. What was that about? Yeah, you, uh, it, it's, it, it, this was a very special card, obviously, uh, Ernie Ladd was coming from the Bill Watts Mid-South Territory. Mr. Wrestling, too, was coming out of the Georgia Territory. Thunderbolt Patterson wrestled all over the country as the Continental Wrestling Association champion, the CWA champion. Uh, he, was, he was coming. I don't even know where he came from uh, that, that, uh, out of, uh, that week for this show. Uh, then uh, fan favorite Tony Charles. Obviously, he became coming out of Knoxville. It was the U, U.S. Junior Heavyweight Champion. And uh, he hadn't been there for five months down in that territory. So there are going to be fireworks, like you said, man, during these right. Not only was there going to be fireworks after the match, there are going to be fireworks in these matches. These are going to be some tremendous matches. Uh, and then at the end of the night, we're going to end it with some fireworks. So we did two different shows for television. For, for the three major markets. Montgomery and Dothan got the exact same show. Uh, they had four TV matches, but uh, they had entirely different interviews because their cards were nowhere near what the Mobile card was. They weren't going to get to see, uh, they weren't going to get to see Ernie Ladd. They weren't going to get to see the CWA champion. Uh, their cards were different. So their TV had to be different. And you couldn't show everything Mobile was going to get because that would really, they would be wondering, well, why didn't we get to see that card? Uh, 
So, uh, so the mobile market got the same four TV matches, uh, but everything else we had to record twice. So the show's opening, all four interview segments and the personality profile were different. So, uh, I think what I'm going to do, Dave, to make this work is I'm going to describe the Mobile TV show only, since it had all the stars, and uh, and they weren't seen at all in the other two TV markets. Mm-hmm. So Charlie Platt, he opened up the Mobile TV in a completely different way than we normally did. He went straight right to the card, coming to Mobile fans four days later. He followed those names with the stars that they were going to be hearing from and seeing in action on the show. And in other words, he prepared the fans watching for something very special. And that's exactly what they were getting, man, something very special. So he invited the current Southeastern Tag Champions, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, join him at the set. Uh, and about the same time, their upcoming opponents in Mobile, uh, the Samoan team went with Billy Spears. They entered the ring for the first TV match. Now, that match, like I said, was seen, this, these four TV matches were the same TV matches. So that match was seen in Montgomery and Dothan, but uh, they didn't they didn't know uh, what was coming so far as the championship being matched between those guys. Uh, every segment of this TV was going to be used basically as an advertisement for that tremendous mobile event. So Fields and Latham, they talked about the fantastic tag team that they would be defending against in Mobile. Uh, those boys really had a lot of respect for the Smoans, and they hadn't so did everybody that ever got in the ring with those guys. And, uh, you know, they even covered the fact that they were going to be indoor fireworks. They talked about the fireworks, too. And then the Samoan team, man, uh, they took care of the, 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 what they needed to do in the ring, man, showing their skills. And they left both of their guys laying, which was not uncommon for them in all their matches. And the match was followed by interviews from both of those two teams. Then the second TV match featured the most unusual Thunderbolt Patterson, which he was. Wow, he was such a great wrestler. But uh, he had such a different style. It was amazing to watch him. You didn't see anybody do bolt stuff. He was good. Uh, Obviously, he was the Continental Wrestling Association champion. So uh, his opponent in the Mobile for the title match was going to be the Hulk. Terry the Hulk Boulder. Wow. And uh, so Terry shows up at the set with Charlie to watch the Thunderbolt in action. And again, there was no avoiding uh, the mention, you know, of of what the the city was, the upcoming matches were on the card, as we customarily did, because this show, like I said, it was made for one market, just for the Mobile and Pensacola area. So uh, they plugged everything. All right, so I, I get the picture, Ron. This entire TV show was going to be a promo for one fabulous night's action. So how about the personality profile? Who was on that? Well, man, like I said, everything was a little bit different in this one. So we opened up this one, Charlie Platt, with the owner of the indoor fireworks company. You know, that would, he was going to be uh, lighting things up at the end of the event, man, that mobile. So we only gave him about a minute. And uh, luckily, this guy was a huge wrestling fan. So, you know, he, he basically said in his short period of time that he was on, he said, I normally, uh, you know, he, did, he didn't get, he didn't go to many of his firework displays. But he said, I'm going to this one, Charlie Platt. He goes, because I'm a huge fan of Ernie Ladd. And, uh, and he said, uh, so, and he was true to his word because as he was leaving, Austin Idol was coming to the set to do the rest of the profile. And when Idol came to the set, Charlie said, Idol wanted to shake the guy's hand. And the guy was such a big fan of Ernie Ladd, and he knew that Idol was going to be wrestling Ladd. Uh, Charlie said the guy refused to shake Idol's hand. (laughs) He walked away. He left Idol standing there with his hand out. Wouldn't shake his hand. So so I showed you Idol had some heat. No, that's a good thing. So then uh, I watched a pre- previously recorded interview, man, from Big Cat Ernie Led. And Ernie wasn't just a monster in the ring. He could talk, man. He was a great talker. And, uh, you know, so Ernie Ladd just chewed up Austin Idol in his interview. He chewed up most guys. Uh, he, he was so good at it. And uh, then and he followed in. And when it was over, 
uh, gave uh, Idle a chance to follow his comments, you know, uh, and uh, Ernie was one of the greatest, most famous wrestlers on earth, man, and uh, really, really phenomenal. So then another special guest uh, was in the ring for the third TV match. Uh, the iconic man, the, the Georgia star man, Mr. Wrestling 2, Johnny Walker. And everybody loved this guy, man. And after he finished his match, uh, and he hit the guy with one of those pulverizing knee lifts, man. Wow, he just, he, he was, he was, he was horrible to be in the ring with when he hit you with that thing. And he joined Charlie then at the set, uh, and he watched an interview done in Knoxville. Uh, was sent in to, uh, to the TV there from the United States uh, Junior Heavyweight Champion, Tony Charles. And after Tony Charles had his say about the match with uh, Wrestling 2, uh, Wrestling 2 was very to, much to the point that uh, Charlie said. He said uh, he expected that uh, he was going to get his hands on a belt he had never worn. Because I'm going to beat Tony Charles, no <laughs> doubt about it. And I'm going to wear that belt. You know? <laughs> so it was a fantastic TV show, man. It ended up with, uh, obviously, the man on the end of the show was the guy at that point there, he dog Boulder. And, uh, boy, he stood the crowd up. Uh, he put this boy and, and his opponent in another bear hug. And last interview with the show was done with the Hulk and, and uh, Thunderbolt Patterson face-to-face, and getting the last word, man, uh, before their CWA, uh, uh, Continental Wrestling Association Championship match four days later. Wow. All right, so that had to be one of the best Southeastern TV shows in history. So many stars on it, so many others seen in video interviews. So tell us what happened on that 4th of July night in 1979. Well, the Mask Inferno uh, beat Larry Edders. Herb Calvert won over Bill Mills. Roy Lee Welch and Ron Slinker got a victory over Eddie Sullivan and the Gladiator, managed by Billy Spears. Tony Charles defeated Mr. Wrestling II, Johnny Walker, and retained his United States Junior Heavyweight Championship. Tony, uh, Thunderbolt Patterson and uh, Terry the Hulk Boulder match ended in a no contest. And uh, Hulk had the match won. He had Patterson in his bear hug, and uh, he was obviously on his way to victory. And Austin Idol came from the dressing room, got in the ring, hit him from behind, broke the hold. Hulk and Idol started fighting. They fought outside the ring. They fought all the way back to Idol's dressing room. Uh, Match ended up as a no contest. The Samoans regained their southeastern tag belts. They got a win over Ricky Fields and Terry Latham. And then the last match of the night ended even in even more controversy. Ernie Ladd had Austin Idol covered for the Southeastern Championship, and uh, then uh, Idol kicked out. And when he did, uh, you know, he, he Idol was pretty strong. He and he he had his his hands underneath Ladd's body, and he shoved him up in the air. And when uh, Ladd came down, he came down on the referee's back. So Ernie was trying to get the referee up and. Hmm. Idle uh, behind his back pulled an object out of his tights and he hit Ernie with it and uh, and he pinned him. Referee counted Lad out. Uh, and then when the Hulk, uh, re- but it was time for the Hulk to kind of return the favor to Idle. And uh, so he went out and uh, and he decided that before the referee could count out Ernie, he jerked, uh, jerked uh, uh, Idle off the top of uh, Ernie. Hmm. And, uh, Ernie never, he didn't get the three count. But he was close to the three count, and uh, and then uh, the, they started fighting again. Idle and uh, and the Hulk, and they fought this time not just uh, toward the dressing room. They fought all over the building, man, and wow. then ended up back at the dressing room finally. And Idle running into the dressing room. What a night for wrestling fans! I mean, they had to be really enjoying that, and it wasn't over yet. So, how about the indoor fireworks? How'd that go? Well, I'm just a disappointed man. I wasn't able to be there to see it myself. You know, <laughs> I, I knew that they were going to have it, but obviously I was pretty much confined to Knoxville. For, uh, you know, I needed to be there. So it was the only time we ever did that, you know, and, and that's in Southeastern. Uh, and I don't think we ever did it in Continental either. Uh, Roy Lee 
uh, told me, he said, Ron, it was absolutely awesome. He said they blacked out the house lights after the last match and Lad and him all got back to the dressing room. They blacked out the house lights and he said, boy, they, that, they lit that building up when there was explosions. Said when the fireworks went on for probably ten minutes. Wow! Inside, said the people were screaming as loud as they were in the matches. They were really, really enjoying it. All right. So if you're a wrestling fan, that's a great way to celebrate the Fourth of July. How about the attendance, Montgomery, Dothan, and on this huge show in Mobile? How how'd that go? Well, both Montgomery and Dothan's crowds were down about five hundred each. Uh, you know, they did not have uh, the impact cards that they normally did. Montgomery was still about 3,500, and Dothan was still around 4,000. But Mobile set a new record, man. Uh, thank goodness we were in the big building, you know, because it enabled us to more than double the size of the crowd from the week before. And uh, Expo Hall, we had about 5,000 week before. We almost sold the building out, man. We had 11,500 fans in that 12,000-seat arena. Stud, this has been a great stud cast, absolutely, ending with one of the largest crowds in Southeastern history. Just like your title suggested, there really was a bear, fireworks, and a wrestling war in it. So all of it was included that you mentioned in the title. So I'm sorry, but we're not going to have enough time for a learning tree question. I really wish we did this week. So hopefully we can get back to that next week. All right. So where will we ride next week as this story continues, Stud? Well, in southeastern Knoxville, the Friday night, July 6, 1979 riot that we just talked about in this Studcast was basically just the beginning of this angle uh, with Jimmy Golden. Jimmy had turned heel for the first time in his 10-year career. He was, he was already 10 years in at this point, and uh, he had never been a heel before. The fans obviously had rioted during it. Uh, my father went to the hospital, and, and things were about to change big time. Uh, I was going to have my first match ever against my cousin, Jimmy Golden. That's going to be the main event the following week. The first ever Welch family feud was beginning. Uh, we're going to have more of those as time goes on. And my brother was coming home after hearing about what had happened to dad. So the Knoxville war was entering a new phase at this point. The all-star company was adding Randy and Randy and Lanny Poffo to their Knoxville cards. And the Knoxville five were beginning to go north to help the Poffos create havoc, not only in Knoxville, but up in Kentucky in that 50 year home of the two Tennessee territories, man, uh, uh, the war is spreading out. It's becoming a much bigger thing than it started out. Southeastern Gulf Coast is coming off, like we talked about tonight, the biggest event and, and week ever at this point. But uh, all was not well there. You know, there, there would be another giant crowd in on the territory within a few weeks. That one's going to be in Dothan, Alabama, in a football field. Uh, but... Uh, there were some mistakes being made by the booker at this point, and uh, it was going to lead to uh, uh, a bad deal for the future of that territory. Uh, Hulk and Idol were having their last matches together uh, this next uh, in this next studcast, mm -hmm. and uh, there were a whole lot of other changes coming as well. So everything was about to go south, as they say, right? Which isn't good. All right. All right, listen, folks, on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. Like and follow him there to become friends with a living legend. On Twitter, same thing, Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow him there as well. Check out the fantastic website, tnstud.com, for every stud cast ever done. 43 Super Stud Cast and Ron's Stud Store. All kinds of souvenirs in the Stud Store, including the thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Get your personally autographed copy. Get it there at tnstud.com. Ron's YouTube channel, Southeastern Rewind, is red hot. It's closing in on 300 hours of video. It has the last 84 stud cast, 52 stud stories, 49 short rides with the stud, and don't miss the new Ask the Stud 6 
question and answer show. I checked it out the other day and much more. Subscribe now to the best old school site on YouTube. It's called Southeastern Rewind. In the search bar on YouTube, put in Southeastern Rewind. You'll be there for days. All right. Any closing comments, Ron? Well, just a quick thank you, man, to all the thousands of loyal Studcast fans out there. Uh, uh, you're everybody's continued support, man, is sure greatly appreciated. And, you know, please let any wrestling fans uh, that you know about out there that don't know anything about us, uh, if you have an opportunity to tell others about it, uh, about what we do, and, uh, you know, and that we're here every week, uh, take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.